What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. Bring in show music, please. Hi, I'm CNBC producer Katie Kramer. Today on Squawk Pod. OpenAI has landed a deal in news. How artificial intelligence will use journalism and how journalism will use AI. Walter Isaacson. The principles of copyright we have apply to AI and to all new technologies. I think this could be a godsend for good journalism. And how our personal data informs those algorithms. Project Liberty founder Frank McCourt on reclaiming ourselves online. Imagine you being in charge now when you log onto the internet. Apple's not in charge. Meta's not in charge. Google or Amazon are not in charge. Those conversations. But first, the big economic story of the day, the week, the month. I was just stunned at Powell's commentary. Fed Chair Jay Powell surprising us all. I thought we would be in this sort of tea leaf reading process this morning. With a pivot at the central bank. So far, so good. It is Thursday, December 14th, 2023. Squawk Pod begins right now. Stand Becky by in three, two, one, cue please. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to Squawk Box right here on CNBC. We are live from the NASDAQ market site in Times Square. I'm Becky Quick, along with Andrew Ross Sorkin and Mike Santoli. Joe is out today. Let's check things out. Mike, by the way, thanks for being here this morning. Andrew, sure. and I appreciate it. Fun to do it. Uh, let's take a look at what's happening with the U.S. equity future. First up today on the podcast, it has been a dramatic chapter in recent central bank history. Yes, dramatic and central banks can go together. The U.S. Federal Reserve has spent more than a year hiking a key interest rate 11 times in an aggressive fight to cool inflation. Well, now the Fed has pivoted, a key word, to a more neutral stance, and much sooner than we all thought. Is this the soft landing we've been waiting for? Inflation returning to the Fed's target rate of just 2% without causing a big jump in unemployment? Maybe. Policymakers signaled that the Fed would start to acknowledge the slowing trend of inflation with a less aggressive monetary stance. The committee is proceeding carefully. We will make decisions about the extent of any additional policy firming, Committee members penciled in at least three rate cuts of a quarter point each in 2024. Here's Fed Chair Jay Powell in his post-meeting press conference. So we added the word any as an acknowledgement that we believe that we are uh, likely at or near the, the peak rate for this cycle. Participants didn't write down additional hikes that we believe are likely, uh, so uh, that's what we wrote down. Um, but. Participants also uh, didn't want to take the possibility of further hikes off the table. So that's really what we were thinking. Markets rallied on the idea of rate cuts coming. The Dow Jones Industrial Average hitting a new all-time high, closing above 37,000. But Fed Chair Powell had many caveats, many. Inflation has to keep coming down and stay down. The job market has to continue to loosen and economic growth has to moderate. If not, the Fed could hike again. We just don't know. I mean, inflation keeps coming down. The labor market keeps getting back into balance. And, you know, it's um, so far so good. Although we, we, we kind of assume that, that it will get harder from here. 
What happened? Yeah, um, I, you know, my first take was uh, the market had relatively high hopes that the Fed would, in fact, back away from any real explicit plans to, to tighten further and maybe declare a soft victory on inflation. And those hopes were exceeded. Exceeded. Yeah. yeah. And I, I, I think the real takeaway is that this outlook, this consensus view that they're going to be cutting rates next year strictly because of progress on inflation, it is not it is not predicated on the economy weakening more or rescuing the economy. It's simply where their math works. And so to me, it's, it's all about uh, we kind of got where we needed to be. Inflation's lower than the Fed thought it was going to be. But even in September, they said at year end, inflation was going to be higher than it's been, been reported. So I think the reason the market reacted as dramatically as it did is not just because of what Powell said, but because the buildup of data leading into it were so encouraging that it said, you know what, the burden of proof is on people who don't think we can have a soft landing. I was just stunned. At, at Powell's commentary. I expected him to be a little more reticent to say we're looking at three rate cuts in the next year. Um, it, it, acknowledging what everybody has seen, and I, but I, I guess I've just gotten used to this this Fed right. kind of just stepping back, right, Andrew? Like, not really. I'm with you, Becky. I was, I was in, in some shock because I thought we would be in this sort of tea leaf reading process this morning, yeah. thinking, you know, what is he really trying to say? And you know, if he actually says it, is he going to be so worried that the market's actually going to fly the way it actually has? And is that unto itself going to create its own inflationary pressures that are going to make it harder for him later? So, yes, I was I was surprised. And by the way, it may make it harder for him later. I don't know. I, you know, I, I, and I was, was sort of thinking about some, some of the Jamie Dimon comments yeah. uh, about inflation being more persistent. I just think we've made a lot of mistakes. And and so they just caution you in the economy. When people look at the current economy and things are going good, stocks are up, and we've had a little bit of, uh, of drugs injected directly into our system called fiscal stimulation, the largest we've ever had in peacetime, and QE, the, the, the largest monetary stimulation, two different things, different effects, but they are drugs running through the system, and they create this kind of sugar high, and we're in a sugar high. So we'll see. I was, I was impressed that he spoke what everybody was thinking. It felt like he was speaking the truth. It felt like he was speaking very honestly from, from what he was seeing. Um, and I guess I don't always expect that from Fed officials. <laughs> you know, no, that's fair. Fed chairman. I don't always expect them to say exactly what they're thinking. I expect it to be, you know, I, you go back to that Greenspan sort of keeping a, a wrap around things right. and having to figure out what, they're mean, what they mean by the, how far they raise their eyes. I mean, part of it is to celebrate the progress made and to basically say, we think we got policy right and we don't want to get tighter for the sake of getting tighter right. or to be the bad cop. It's because we were only focused on getting inflation down. And I think the encouraging part is, look, the outlook for next year for the economy embedded in the Fed's forecast is not wonderful. It's no. under 2% real GDP growth. They still pencil in unemployment rising to 4.1%, but it's not necessarily about we really have to run this economy at stall speed or worse in order to get the job on inflation done. Right, and, and he did say very clearly inflation is still too high. And, and Andrew, yeah. you bring up what Jamie Dimon worries about with some of these things. We had Ken Langone on yesterday. He was saying he hopes they don't cut rates because he's worried about inflation coming back too with, with government spending kind of spending pushing up some of this potentially. I wouldn't lower rates. I'd keep rates up there to make damn certain that I'm doing what I can to squeeze the system to get it back to a sounder footing. I mean, we lived on free money for 10 years and now we're paying the price or 12 years, I guess it was. It's going to be very interesting to watch how this plays out to see what the next numbers show. 
If you listen to the entirety of, of Powell's speech, he acknowledged all of those things, but we all hear what we want right. to hear. And I think the market, the part of the market that was um, itching to, 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 to run ahead because they think those rate cuts are coming, right. heard plenty to, to, to feel like they were completely justified with what's happening. But in Becky, fact, you're right. There was something very human about it. Yeah, it was. It was. I mean, you're right. Very on green Spanish. And I think, I think in this case, the market appreciates that. It's, it's a very interesting question about whether in this role you're supposed to, you know, uh, make it be very direct or you're supposed to sort of, you know, leave everybody to guess. I, I mean, if, on the one hand, too, you have to keep in mind he's trying to somewhat accurately convey where the, the majority of the committee is. True. I mean, you had some dovish people on that committee, and, and you know, you don't want to necessarily be obscure for its own sake. Uh, the market very well could be overshooting in the short term on this. Yeah. Um, you have the 10-year yield under 4%. Right. You know, it was just a few months ago, not even, that the Fed was saying, well, we don't have to do anything because long-term yields are higher. It's doing right. our job for us. He declined like the opportunity to actually make right. the reverse argument yesterday and say, well, we can't be easing anytime soon because mortgage rates are going to crash from here. And by the way, they will. What, what, what I heard, oh, I know, I, I'm in the middle of yeah, oh, yeah. one up and yeah. I talked to the guy yesterday. I'm like, hey, it's, it's at 4% barely holding on there. What, yeah. what, what is my rate today? But I will say when I was listening to it, I was like, oh, man, this leaves them open for a lot of criticism. If inflation comes back, if they don't cut right. rates, if something happens on any of these levels. But I also thought listening through Everybody's going to hear what they want to take out of that if they want to criticize him, because he was very straightforward speaking and, and acknowledged every one of these issues. It's just that he spoke so clearly that anybody who wants to hang their hat on some criticism yeah. may take that. Well, but I think that's also the encouraging part, which is all that matters is the inflation path from here in terms of what right. they do next or not do next. It's not as if, you know, when he was when they were chasing inflation, he had to grab at all these data points. Oh, University of Michigan inflation expectations, gasoline prices, job openings, all these things that were kind of secondary to what inflation was doing because he had to send the message that, you know, we, we're not close. Yeah. And now it's just about what the inflation numbers come through. And the trend is encouraging. And, and let's take a look at these Treasury yields while we have them here. The yield on the 10-year, 3.951%. The two-year, you know, we keep saying, oh, the two years below or above 4.7%. The two years at 4.332. And I'm, I'm reading out how far this goes because yesterday, watching, I mean, that was the number that I was oh, watching yeah. as this was coming out. Like, holy cow, you've got to be kidding me. That keeps falling. That's well, if they're saying by the end of next year, I mean, we don't know what the forecast is. The dot plot is only just kind of a right. best guess. But if they're saying 4.6 for Fed funds rate. And so the two-year yield, you know, might be downside from there beyond the end of next year. Yeah, so. it's been amazing. Yeah. Meantime, let's talk about Adobe right now because take a look at these shares. They are lower, sharply lower. Earnings of $4.27 per share. Missed estimates of $4.14. Revenue also coming in slightly above estimates. But guidance disappointing the street, sparking worry that it could take longer than analysts had expected for artificial intelligence to boost its results. But it also is indicative, to me at least, I don't know about you, Becky, that of all the companies that could succeed, I mean, NVIDIA obviously is its own category for, in terms of benefiting from AI, but we all keep waiting and, and asking the question about some of the big tech software makers, how much AI is gonna fundamentally change their business, really boost earnings in a meaningful way. Adobe is probably the one company where you can actually see the AI in the software today. It's remarkable if anybody's even played with it. It's, it's shocking uh, how good it is and you're having people using it. And yet clearly it's not benefiting them yet the way they were expecting. 
Uh, I think there's still questions. I mean, Microsoft has talked about uh, some of the benefits for it. But, you know, does this become a feature that everybody has that's commoditized to some degree? Or is this some kind of you know, new world that actually benefits everybody meaningfully? I think there's a real question about that long term. What, what does it do exactly? I know we've talked a little bit about this, but I haven't played with it. What, what are the new cool oh my things God. that I, I, I mean, let you do? You know, I, we, I don't we, know how much of it is we just don't understand. Not everybody understands what it might be able to do. You know when people talk about a photoshopped picture, you know, uh, yeah. how you could take, uh, you know, two pictures and put them in one and they always, it doesn't look right because you can see that they're overlapping. Well, one of the reasons we're always worried about misinformation is because today, literally today, if you had Photoshop, you could take a picture, two pictures of us, Becky, from 10 years apart in totally different scenarios, put them next to each other. They would blend completely. You could have a picture of, uh, you know, somebody uh, standing on a beach and, you know, sometimes maybe you don't have the full beach behind you. Well, all of a sudden you have to do is just <laughs> highlight the beach and it, it, it makes the beach a little longer so that the framing see, of it works properly. You, Every, you know, you want to add a cloud, you want to add a tree. It does it and it and it's completely realistic. It, it's it's beyond and it's being used today. And yet it's not improving the full outlook for the company in part, again, because I think that all of this type technology may just become an expected feature that everybody's going to have. Guys, I, I, yeah. I don't know if either of you saw this. Yesterday, Drudge had a story about um, AI news anchors that are being tested someplace, and they look pretty well, good. Well, yeah. We're going to be <laughs> out of work I was thinking soon. For I know. Writing the, it's writing the copy. Might yeah, as well have them Writing it, yeah. the copy, and, and, and no smart aleck responses. You could control exactly what the anchors say, when they say it, when they shut up, which is probably a pretty welcome feature around here. Saw that and thought the same thing. For sure. We got to talk about this story, guys, because it's uh, quite something. Citigroup now offering to pay some staffers a portion of their bonuses early if they agree to leave the company. A Bloomberg report saying the bank uh, making the offer to a limited number of staffers who would be able to keep all of their deferred stock awards in addition to the bonus payment. Now, eligible staffers are those impacted by the bank's reorganization. City has already cut more than 300 senior management roles and hasn't put a number out on how many more cuts are still to come, but uh, they're basically saying, here's the door and here's some money, uh, please go through it. Well, the deferred compensation is a way of trying keeping people around, right. making sure you stay. If we, they no longer want you and they think you're just staying around because you're just waiting to get the payout of the restricted shares or whatever else kicks in. Right. Yeah. Look, okay. there's something actually good about this, rather than saying, here's the door and, and by the and way, you're gonna get nothing. It. Right, yeah, it's so, a better deal, yes, I there's suppose. there's something very, Gentlemanly about Humane <laughs> about it. Cheese will be next. Coming up on Squawk Pod, examining the Internet's infrastructure with a former baseball team owner and now Project Liberty founder, Frank McCourt. The algorithms are working perfectly, right? If an algorithm is designed to keep you online and the way to keep people triggered and defending themselves and then the other person defends themselves and so forth, you are in an endless loop of disagreement. How it works how it should work, and what damage it's doing to us all. We'll be right back. Hi, I'm Ben Rizzuto, wealth strategist at Janice Henderson Investors. Is a brighter future possible? At Janice Henderson, we think it is. For 90 years, we've worked to help clients achieve superior financial outcomes and fulfill our purpose of investing in a brighter future together. We know that this means our thinking and our investments are helping to shape millions of futures. At Janice Henderson, we are committed to helping you invest in a brighter future for the next 90 years and beyond. To learn more, go to JaniceHenderson.com. 
That's what an estimated 500 horsepower sounds like. How about that? That's a premium banging Olufsen sound system with 18 speakers and a Biosonic sound experience. And that, that's our legacy. You ready to be a part of it? Unlock the energy of the all-electric ZDX Type S. Order now at Acura.com. You're listening to Squawk Pod from CNBC, where our Becky Quick caught up with the billionaire founder of Project Liberty, Frank McCourt. Internet safety has been a top of mind in recent months with a renewed push for Congress to pass the Kids Online Safety Act. Our next guest has been working diligently to address internet safety and data protection. And joining us right now is Frank McCourt. He's the founder and executive chairman of Project Liberty. He's also the executive chairman of McCourt Global. And Frank, Let's talk a little bit about what this is. How did you get involved? Why is this such an important project to you? Well, it just, uh, uh, boy, over the last decade, I've been watching what's happening to this country that I love and, and, uh, and seeing it just get ripped apart. And as we dug deeper into it, we just came to the realization that, uh, you know, the problem here is that this omnipresent, ubiquitous technology that we're all using is actually causing lots of bad things to happen. And uh, we, we've ended up with a highly centralized, autocratic surveillance type of technology, which is really uh, hurting us in so many ways, whether it's young kids and the harms it's doing that are now well-documented or just undermining our democracy. I mean, not a day goes by where we don't read some other story of the dysfunction and the inability to, to even be gov- governable here. and, and uh, you know, you might ask the question, like, why are our are, are elected officials not doing something about it? Well, well, they're in the same eco ecosystem, right? That's completely broken and dysfunctional. So as an as an infrastructure person, by the way, my family's been building infrastructure for 130 years. So we'll, we look at this as an infrastructure design problem. And if we can fix that, we have a shot now of actually using the tech to actually help us solve problems, not okay, create let, problems. Let's get to that, because I, I am with you asking the question, why is Congress enabled to pack something like the Kids Online Safety Act, which if you're saying you're opposed to that, what in the world is wrong with you? How can you not get things through? We're using our kids as lab rats with, with this grand experiment that we know from studies that have been done is causing them harm, makes them feel worse about themselves, leads to all kinds of uh, online bullying and other issues, not to mention child pornography and the you know, the sexual assault, basically, that takes place online with these kids. Well, you're talking common sense, right? You're talking like as a mom, right? Yeah. That this, we, we need to protect kids. I mean, that's like the, the number one responsibility that we have and a society has, protect children. We would never it, allow this behavior to take place in a Chuck E. Cheese or in a mall or in somewhere in the real world online. Suddenly it's okay if you can get it down to one or two or 5% of the transactions that are taking place. Unfortunately, what's happened with this technology, it, the design of the tech and how now in its centralized form, dominated by a few apps, what ends up happening is we, the, the information that they aggregate and apply algorithms to. And by the way, algorithms are just another name for artificial intelligence. So it's not a new thing. These algorithms are designed actually to divide us and, and, and separate us. Because it's a better us. response when you're mad, you spend more time online? Well, if you look, I think the algorithms are working perfectly, right? If an algorithm is designed to keep you online and the way to keep people 
triggered and defending themselves, and then the other person defends themselves and so forth, you are in an endless loop of disagreement, right? 50-50, everything is like stalemate. Yeah. And that's what we're seeing. So I would say the algorithms are working great. We need to fix that. And um, as far as your- how do, how do you do that? How do you fix the algorithm? It, again, thinking of this as a, as a, from an infrastructure level, the, the internet 40 years ago, there was something, a, a protocol called TCP IP that basically connected computers. Right, and then we suddenly had this massive computer network. Thirty years ago, we, the, the World Wide Web came into being. Again, enabled by another protocol, HTTP, and this is when data was was the name of the game. That data has been sucked up now by a, a few, four or five major companies. You know their names, and they dominate our lives. Right? They have the value, and they have the control. We believe that another protocol, we call it DSMP, which connects us as people, returns ownership and control of the data to us as individuals. We decide what to do with it. We decide what apps to use. We're not stuck in these walled gardens and we're not manipulated. You mean this, is, this takes back control from the Googles, from the Apples, from the whoever they may be? Apple has parental controls on things. How is this different? Well, it's, it's because we're talking at the core, core infrastructure layer now, right? And so what what imagine you being in charge now when you log on to the internet apple's not in charge meta's not in charge google or amazon are not in charge okay what i'll say as a parent is i don't know that i'm even good enough at using the parental controls to, to it's to not a parental control issue it's a matter of just there'll there'll be a whole new set of um services provided in this new world but the point i'm fundamentally making un unless and until we would return our data, our property, I would say our personhood in this world, right? Because there's really no difference between your biological DNA and your digital DNA in this life until we realize that this has been stripped, our personhood has Anybody been stripped from us. Anybody under 40 doesn't care. They think that their privacy Oh, I, I disagree. I think they're, they're caring a lot now. I think, we're, I, I think what we're seeing real time now is a mass awareness that we have a broken system and it needs to be fixed. But if you've got some of the protocols, let's like let's say uh, if you want to be on Instagram or Facebook in Europe and you have to pay five ninety nine if you want it to be without ads and without them mining your data, there's a real question as to how many people would actually pay for that. Again, it's not really an issue of I, I would argue that we shouldn't be thinking about this in the terms of the way things work now. We should be thinking about first. We should be acknowledging that we have a broken system, right? We I think can acknowledge that. I agree with that. We need to think about how to fix it. I would argue that you fix it from the ground up, and then when you fix it, you have a new paradigm. And we don't—we shouldn't be thinking of things in terms of the way they work now. We should be thinking of them in terms of the way they should work to support kids and protect them and support democracy. Is this something that Congress has to sign off on to go through it? Because if they can't even pass the, you know, Kids Safety Online Act, the idea of them saying, "Sure, we think there has to be an entirely new infrastructure," which honestly sounds pretty complicated. Well, it's first of all, we don't need Congress to do it. We can innovate our way forward as opposed to But none to of the big big bucks companies are going to want to do it uh, themselves. Uh, okay, <laughs> now you've hit the nail on the head. Right. right. That's. But the question is, do we sit here and say, mm, big problem, too, sol too difficult to solve, and let this continue with generative AI now? Mm -hmm. By the way, a fancy name for the same technology that, 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 that basically surveils us, grabs our data, applies algorithms. Do we want to continue with a broken system and make it more powerful? Or do we want to fix it before this new wonderful technology is unleashed? The tech is not the problem. 
how it's designed and uses the problem. But what is the answer? Government regulation to force no, this or? No, no. Like, in, because innovation. if it's not big money and if it's not government regulation, I don't know how it gets done. Innovation. You actually remember 30 years ago, there wasn't the, the system we have now and people were not. They were asking questions like, what is the Internet? What is the World Wide Web? Yeah. Imagine the future differently than the past. And that means a redesign of how this technology works. Frank, I'm intrigued. We'll have to have you back. Frank McCourt, appreciate it. Yeah, appreciate your time. Thank you. Next on Squawk Pod, AI is big news, but not in the way you think. The parent company of Politico and Business Insider, a publisher called Axel Springer, is joining the Associated Press and striking a deal with OpenAI. Their news will train ChatGPT on the news. And yep, all for a fee. Journalist, author, and biographer extraordinaire Walter Isaacson weighs in on AI's role in the future of the newsroom. Yeah, you could scrape all of my content and you could then have a much better bot. But if you're going to scrape my content, we're going to have to make a deal. You're going to have to pay money. Did you hear that? That's what an estimated 500 horsepower sounds like. How about that? That's a premium banging Olufsen sound system with 18 speakers and a Biosonic sound experience. And that, that's our legacy. You ready to be a part of it? Unlock the energy of the all-electric CDX Type S. Order now at Acura.com. Welcome back to Squawk Pod. Our final conversation on today's episode, Artificial Intelligence in Journalism. Andrew Ross Sorkin and fellow author and journalist, Walter Isaacson. OpenAI has inked a deal with parent company of Politico and Business Insider, that's Axel Springer, the multi-year agreement compensating Axel Springer for the content OpenAI will use to generate answers on ChatGPT and train its models. The Associated Press reaching a similar deal with OpenAI in July, joining us now with more on AI's implications for journalism, CNBC contributor Walter Isaacson and advisor, advisory partner at Prella Weinberg, Professor Tulane. The list goes on. And of course, uh, biographer of the world's uh, greatest innovators, including Elon Musk, Steve Jobs, Leonardo da Vinci. We could just use the whole segment to go through the bio uh, at this point, Walter. Um, the, well, I could I could be flip and say, when is it that all these books that you're writing are going to be written by AI once they've uh, you know consumed uh, all 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 of your previous books and everything else? And is this a good thing or a bad thing that these guys are doing all these deals? You know, it's a really good question. I mean, one of the things you bring to the party, I bring to the party, is we go out there. I live in a Airstream trailer for a year in Boca Chica, Texas, watching Musk wa walk the assembly line. So at the moment, no robot can be doing that and taking notes and processing it. But certainly the day my book comes out, an AI bot could take the entire book and process it and repurpose it and repackage it. And that's why I think what uh, Axel Springer did has a wonderful, smart CEO, Matthias Dupfner, um, and AP is doing as well, is saying, yeah, you could scrape all of my content and you could then have a much better bot. But if you're going to scrape my content, we're going to have to make a deal and you're going to have to pay money. And I would hope my publisher, Simon & Schuster, and your publisher, Andrew, would say, yeah, if you want to take that entire book, ingest it, and make it part of a training set, uh, that's just like if you want to make it into an audible book or something, we're going to have an arrangement for that. 
And that's where I think uh, we're going to see the conflict. But I'm really glad Axel Springer is jumping on the case by, and so is the Murdoch empire, by making right. this a copyright issue. Do you think that there's a first mover advantage to making these deals? Meaning, I have a view, I may be wrong about this, that those who make the deals early, the value proposition to an open AI is the, the AP archive is very, very valuable. The may, maybe doing it through Politico could be very va valuable, I don't know. But that once you actually capture one or two or three big archives, the other archives therefore become less valuable because you may not need them. Uh, you know, I, I know uh, Mark Benioff owns Time Magazine. That archive unto itself, I mean, you know Time Magazine better than anybody. They've been, and I, I say this with great respect, one of the things they did over many, many years is they would pick great quotes on a fair use basis out of all the newspapers when they were writing a profile of someone uh, sometimes. I mean, people, if you go back in sort of the archives, so they actually have some of the best stuff from everybody else's, from everybody else's journalism, which is very, a very interesting issue. So all of a sudden, if you were to license that archive, you would undermine the value of, of, of the original archives where some of this material came from. This is where we get to the great fair use law and uh, it has come up to the Supreme Court even uh, with my friend Lynn Goldsmith does a picture of the musician Prince and it's sampled by Andy Warhol for his piece of art. How much can you use without violating copyright? And the interesting thing is the principles of copyright we have apply to AI and to all new technologies. I think this could be a godsend for good journalism. I mean, we've gone through a decade, actually 20 years almost, in which good journalism has been decimated by the internet because the business model doesn't work anymore. That's why Time Magazine is so thin. But if you are creating good, well-reported, exclusive journalism, if you decided you're sending a reporter to the Rafa crossing in Gaza uh, and you're going to spend the money to do that, then you're going to be able to license your content and there will be competition. I use three or four AIs right now. I use Grok, of course, and I use OpenAI. And at a certain point, there'll be a differentiator, which is which of those has content that is trained to be the most reliable. Because one of the oldest rules in computer science is GIGO, garbage in, garbage out. So who puts in the best training data? Well, Walter, that's what I was, so the next question I was going to go, go to Grok uh, and Elon Musk. Uh, when I spoke to him just two weeks ago, he said something fascinating, uh, which was that he, he said many things fascinating when you spoke to him, but let's uh, stick with whatever you want you're picking. Uh, on, no, on the, on the AI front, he said, look, all of these models, including OpenAI, have effectively been training on copyrighted material the entire time. It's a lie that they haven't, is what he said. He said it'll get worked out in court probably in a, you know, in a long time from now after you know, everybody's built their systems anyway. Um, he also, you know, when we started talking about the value of the, the, the data that he has on Twitter, you know, he's now offering, you know, any investor in, in X is getting a 25% stake in his AI uh, company. And so how, how do you see that data stream? Is that, is that gold? And Absolutely is there, is there, crucial. But is there garbage in, garbage out? Like, how do you know what's going to be the good stuff? Because I, I, I know it, but there's, you know, some of it's very factual, some of it's not. Yeah. Well, the uh, two points there. First of all, the data stream, the billion tweets a day on Twitter is the hive mind of humanity, enormously valuable. And when he was first closing the deal in October of last year, 
I was at one of the meetings and uh, it, he got dark and angry and he said, we're going to cut off the API, meaning, you know, the interface that Google and Microsoft and other developers can use to get access to some of our data flow. And I remember people got really upset. Why is Musk cutting this off? It makes it harder to study things uh, in Twitter. And the reason he said to me privately is because he was starting an AI company and he didn't want Microsoft to be able every day to be scraping that data for open AI. Now comes the second part of your question, which is really fascinating, is you want that data stream, let's say it's a Twitter hive mind of humanity data stream, you don't want it to be too polluted, otherwise it's not gonna be good. You're gonna get a Grok AI that does really toxic things, and the fact that he's allowing the Twitter feed to become uh, more controversial, more toxic, more uh, putting out fringe theories, in the long run, I think that's going to hurt the value of that stream. Walter, we'll uh, we'll talk more about this. There's so much, I got to catch up with you on about a hundred other things. So hopefully, we'll have an opportunity to talk to you again very, very soon. But thank you. It's always good to be with you. And that's the pod for today. Thanks for listening, as always. Squawk Box is hosted by Joe Kernan, Becky Quick, and Andrew Ross Sorkin. You can tune in weekday mornings on CNBC at 6 Eastern. And to get the smartest takes and analysis from our TV show right into your ears anytime, follow Squawk Pod wherever you get your podcasts. We'll meet you back here tomorrow. We are clear. Thanks, guys. That's what an estimated 500 horsepower sounds like. How about that? That's a premium banging Olufsen sound system with 18 speakers and a Biosonic sound experience. And that, that's our legacy. You ready to be a part of it? Unlock the energy of the all-electric ZDX Type S. Order now at Acura.com.